This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Learning to follow is equally as important at NASA as learning to lead and to be able to step in and out of that role, either yeah. either role seamlessly is a real skill set. A lot of people, once they get the uh, taste of leadership, they don't want to ever give it up. But depending on the situation, you sometimes just need to do what you're told, especially in an emergency or something like that. Someone's going to give directions, you're going to follow them or you could die. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. All paths to spaceflight are unique, with different milestones along the way and various gatekeepers to get past, and a lot of factors affect the final outcome. Those of us who made the final cut at NASA never really know for sure why we were chosen over other candidates, but each of us has memories of the journey and some suspicions about why we got that prized blue flight suit. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jana Cavandi about her journey to the NASA Astronaut Corps, what she thinks put her there over the top and into the roster of elite people, and what she thinks the future may hold. So, Jana, it's delightful to talk with you. Uh, you've got a storied spaceflight history of your own, and you're now sitting in a very interesting seat, one of the pivotal roles helping this new commercial era emerge. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Kathy. It's my pleasure. So you joined the Astronaut Corps almost 20 years after I did. I'm 78. I think you were 94. 95. Mm -hmm. 95. And in my era, you pretty well had to have a PhD in medicine, engineering, or the sciences, or a thousand hours of military test pilot experience. Mm -hmm. And even with all of that, there would be at least tens of people make the finalist pool and a much smaller number chosen. Right. So I'm curious, what was your take of what NASA was looking for when you came along? Had it changed from that in any way? I think it was very similar to your experience, actually, Kathy. Um, you know, having a PhD in, in the sciences, I felt that I really did need to have that level of education and experience, experience in industry related to aerospace to qualify myself. I did look at biographies, yours and people like yours, to see what it would take to be qualified, and decided that 
having not been a military test pilot, that that was the best route for me. I uh, love science. I uh, had always wanted to be a scientist. So getting a PhD was something that, you know, was in the cards for me anyway, but I had hoped that it would also make me more qualified to get that prize blue suit. as you call it. <laughs> And remind me what your PhD was in. I have a PhD in chemistry, analytical chemistry from the University of Washington in Seattle. Wow. So of all the other PhDs that made it to the finalist pool in the 94-95 selection, have you formed any theories over the years about what was it about your academics or your work experience or character and, and attitude? I have thought about that many times. I uh, always joked with uh, Mr. Dwayne Ross, as you may call as the mm-hmm. icon of astronaut selection, that he must have mistakenly put me in the wrong pile because, <laughs> you know, and then just couldn't admit it later and had to let me in. Because after you after you do interview with your classmates who are there at the same time you are to interview, you just immediately assume that you're not going to make it because there's so many immensely qualified people, just great human beings, right? And you just yeah. love them all. And you're like, well, this has been a great experience, but you won't yeah. me. That's exactly, that was exactly my experience. Yeah. Oh, man, you're just enjoy this week. You're lucky you're even here. That's exactly how I felt. Uh, and that's what I told my husband when I went home. That, yeah, that was awesome, but I know I'm not going to get in. So when you do get the call, you're in shock. And it's like a Nobel Prize call. It is. It really, really is. And it was on his birthday. I remember calling him and I was so excited. And I'm sure he thought I was going to wish him a happy birthday. And <laughs> instead, I, I was trying to get the words out and I was so choked up that he thought I was hurt. And <laughs> you were crashing <laughs> his birthday. <laughs> it was happy birthday, but your wife is going to be an astronaut. How cool is that? So, but it was, it was awesome. I, after having been on the other side and done selections later, I think maybe at least I know what I look for in candidates. Of course, you have all these incredibly educated people with PhDs and masters and doctors and geologists and astronomers and medical doctors and test pilots. And they're all amazing. And they're enthusiastic and they're and they're just such hard charging people. But what it really comes down to, I think, even with all that talent is if you look at each one individually, would you really want to be able to, could you spend a year in space with them, right? In a very close quarters in a remote location, would you personally want to trust your life to that person? Because, you know, you have to. That's what's involved. Right. And so when you start going to that level, you start being able to weed out some people that, yeah, I don't think that person would be the one I'd want to spend a year in space with. It has to do a lot with character, like you mentioned, uh, people with a lot of arrogance or, or ego uh, don't usually do well in the astronaut office. People who really chip in and help everyone with every task don't even have to be asked because they're just givers, right? And yeah. real team players, those are the ones that really try, you know, I think NASA tries to select and the core. Let me pick up the word givers for a second. I mean, we've all seen it in different walks of life. Someone's kind of, well, it's, let me put it this way. There can be kind of a fine line between chipping in to help you and horning in. Uh Right. To take the role instead of you. Was that something you tried to pick out of people or discern or? That's a good point. And I hadn't actually meant it that way. Uh, You know, some people you have a hard time getting them to contribute because either that's not my job. I don't do that. Or the other extreme, which is what you're saying, is I have to control everything. 
Yeah. I must tell everyone what to do and it must always be my way. So that's the other extreme. Neither one works out very well in space because you just drive people crazy. <laughs> and so you, you definitely want the people who are easy to get along with, who are very flexible, you know, with respect to time tasks. If their task got canceled, they'll come over and offer to help. Is there anything to do? Or if they can't, Maybe they can make you dinner tonight, right? Or or do something like that. Take for some you. strain. Yeah. Yeah. Take some something off your plate so that you can get your stuff done. And so those are the kinds of people I think that really do well in, in that environment. And it's not really about them. It's yeah. about what can I do to help us all succeed. You know, I remember one candidate, they were a finalist, they were down for an interview, and I was maybe a week or two. I was, I was very close up to my third flight. And I happened to bump into one of our technical people in the hall and we're having a very focused, you know, that kind of where a few days from flight, we all know what's going on. You can go right to the meat of some matter and quickly sort it out. We're talking that intensely. And this guy's sort of hovering off on the edges, like apparently wanting to talk to me. And my recollection of that encounter is I glanced at him a couple of times, I think trying to signal, let me finish here. This is really important. He apparently read it differently and stepped in to the conversation circle and sort of threw out some light banter that just drove me nuts because you're you're breaking the train of thought. I walked right down the hall to one of the guys on the selection board at the time and said, you ever put him on a spaceship, I'll kill him. <laughs> to that guy's credit, he networked through someone else he knew and called me back and said, what happened? And I, I told him straight out. And he explained what he had been intending and clearly thought about it and took it aboard because he applied again and was selected again. And that was Pierce Sellers, a very effective and successful oh, wow. member of the astronaut corps. You know, that first impression was just, okay, this will not work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very cool. So when you later on were on selection panels, had anything significant changed in the kinds of technical backgrounds and experiences you were looking for? Yes, I think to some extent, I mean, the basics of what we just discussed about the type of personality that we look for and the level of education, NASA can essentially demand that just because there's so many people that want to be a NASA astronaut. And so NASA can be very, very choosy. So to to get that high level of education and experience and other things like um, like we've learned that if you love camping, right, you're that kind of adventurous person that is comfortable when they're uncomfortable, right? Uh, right. You don't have to have that shower every day. <laughs> you don't have to have that hot breakfast every morning, but you can adapt and you can be comfortable because of where you are and what you're experiencing. People who really enjoy flying and who love la- learning languages, who love learning, period, right? All kinds of things that you remember you had to learn that were not in your background before you came to NASA became part of your background. So that that need to learn and absorb and then just be thrilled at the you know chance to fly in space and to look out the, the window there and just watch the earth go by in awe of you know looking at all of humanity and all of yeah. the history of the planet is just passing below you just to be a kid again in that sense. I think I tried to find people who I thought genuinely were that kind of person um, who loved the adventure, who loved being those givers and helpers who um, weren't trying to control yet could step into a leadership position when called upon. I thought that was one of the other really, really beneficial parts of being in the astronaut office was learning to lead and then learning to follow. Learning to follow is equally as important 
at NASA as learning to lead and to be able to step in and out of that role, either yeah. either role seamlessly is a real skill set. A lot of people, once they get the uh, taste of leadership, they don't want to ever give it up. But depending on the situation, you sometimes just need to do what you're told, especially in an emergency or something like that. Someone's going to give directions, you're going to follow them or you could die. So it's uh, one of those kinds of situations that finding that personality with all that knowledge and, and experience and that strong desire to learn and discover, finding that perfect package is actually kind of hard, even though you may have 10,000 applicants, you know, it's still kind of hard to vet it all out. Yeah. And yes, when you're looking at a hundred or so really superb individuals for 10 seats or something on that order, you're looking for those fine points. And sometimes that doesn't come out until a second interview. So the one of the things I think we did do was have a second interview for people. Ah. We discovered that most people can fake it through a first interview. <laughs> Almost everyone can do that. But sometimes on a second, you can really flesh out the thing. You know, you've had your nice talk. Everyone gets to bring out their their high points. But on the second one, you can dig a little deeper and uh. we can talk about the the bad days that you've had in your career and how you overcame those, you know, what was your worst day ever in your career? You know, those kinds of things, those those can get pretty emotional for people. And they're very revealing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And how you handle that. I'm sure, but you tell me if I'm wrong, when you asked someone that and they told about one of those really, you know, awful, embarrassing, whatever it all was, how much weight were you putting on whether or not it became really emotional, whether they talked about any, you know, struggle climbing back out of that hole, where you look for people that didn't blink at all, just rolled right on by, or what mattered less was how deep a hole you went into than your attitude to getting out of it. What were you looking for there? Uh, it was more of how you recovered, right? Certainly, you have to have people who don't give up. Perseverance is really important, not arrogance. I say there's sometimes a fine line, right, between annoyance and perseverance. <laughs> uh, so, somebody who's willing to find the way around. I always joked about if somebody rolled a big boulder in front of you in a narrow valley and you can't go past that boulder. Do you sit down there and start feeling sorry for yourself because you, you can't go farther? Or do you immediately start figuring out a way to get around that boulder, right? So, the people that quit and cry about it aren't going to make it right. So it's the ones that always find a way, you know, over around whatever you have to figure out, but you find a way, you know, some people's idea of a bad day, you know, we had physicians who were um, in wars, you know, there were medical officers uh, who would go out and, you know, I remember one story was just heart wrenching, but a physician had to go out and be with someone who wasn't going to survive, who had severe burns and a casualty in the field and, and, you know, how that last conversation went and how wow. he had to tell the families. That's a tough that, day. That's a tough day. Yeah. Yeah. I got passed over for the promotion I want does not make that scale. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Even though it can be somebody's worst day if they've been very lucky in life, yeah. but that's a tough day. And so that person got emotional and I respected that that emotion meant there's a heart in there and, a, and a, a deep person who will carry that with him forever. And that was the kind of person I wanted to have on our team, right? Someone who really, really cares. And is centered enough to not be wigged out by letting that show. Right. To absorb authentic enough. Do. Right. Authentic enough to let that show. Right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. To share it and then talk about how he got through it and how he continues to get through it. Yeah 
always carry that though as a lesson learned and I'm sure it never goes away. Right. So you you were in the Corps and, and in NASA as let's say the initial wave of commercial providers of transport to orbit really started rising. And now you're part of that wave, as we said at the top. And I'm curious, you know, many of those spacecraft, Dragon is a great example. Many of them are much more automated than the shuttle was. There was a lot of automation in shuttle, but there were still a lot of manual interfaces for the crew to actually operate things. Dragon is certainly in a really different design point than that. And I'm not familiar with how Dream Chaser will be in terms of either the piloting or the the passenger experience. What do you think will be the same and different that SpaceX or Blue Origin or Axiom or or you guys, what are you going to be looking for? to pick the people who fly on your vehicles. And and are you going to look, you know, NASA was kind of looking for two kinds of people, the pilot folks and the engineer and operator folks. What kind of categories are you guys thinking of? No, that's a really good question. So let me back up just a tad and, and say that we are, our first missions will be cargo only. So they'll be going to the International Space Station under a cargo resupply to mission contract with NASA. So our first launch should be next year. So it will be fully automated. It will launch rendezvous dock and undock and then land fully automated. Will Dream Chaser do the active docking or is station going to Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a grapple and it's a berthing. I I misspoke. It is a a grapple and berth. So we do also have a crude version in work. Uh, So we're still applying to that. We actually competed initially for the we being before my time at Sierra Nevada or Sierra Space. We've carved out to a space company, a separate space company called Sierra Space. But we are revamping that original design, improving upon it uh, so that we can carry six passengers, similarly to what uh, some of our competitors are doing. Uh, it will be a runway landing, again, very similar to the way that the shuttle landed. So we will have a smoother landing. We will be able to bring back experiments and protein crystals and things that are more delicate back to the runways for scientists and then crew back to our runway as well. So that's really the reason I chose Sierra Nevada at the time, now Sierra Space, was so that I could bring back a winged spacecraft to the ground. Uh, Because if I were were to fly again, that's personally how I would like to land. The automation, though, then to your point, is is there. It will be able to fly automatically. When we start flying crew, my personal preference, and we've been having these discussions lately, is to have an intervention uh, capable so that a pilot could take over in the event of an off-nominal situation, you know, where it's lining up with the runway or whatever. But it will be designed to be as automated as necessary to fully land. But I still like the the backup capability. So let's fast forward to sometime in the future when that vehicle is up and running. And I'm sure these are things you're still talking about internally and may change over time. But would the model be a pilot who can intervene if needed and the rest are passengers of some description? Yeah. What do you think the criteria for the passengers will be? And will we ever get to a point where the passenger briefing to fly with you guys is about the same as getting on Southwest Airlines? You know, seatbelt, oxygen mask, tray table. Thank you very much. Enjoy the flight. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people would love to hear that that's probably the case, but I think it will be quite a while before we're to that point. I personally feel that 
strapping on a rocket is still much different than taking off on a runway. My husband's an airline pilot and I fly a lot myself. So I know what airline flying is like, and I don't see us getting to that level of routineness for some time. Uh, it just takes a lot of propellant to, you know, to yeah. free ourselves from the forces of gravity. You're riding a bomb, not a plane. Right. Yeah. yeah. Controlled <laughs> bomb, right? I don't see that happening anytime real soon. However, we are making a lot of progress in allowing more and more types of people to be able to fly in space. We are partnered with Blue Origin on a commercial LEO destination uh, called Orbital Reef. So it's a commercial space station. On the space station, we plan to have professional astronauts who will maintain it, you know, run it, maintain it, do the EVAs, do all the work on it so that any researchers and manufacturing folks who want to go up there and make products or do research, uh, biopharma and things like that, can fully dedicate their time to their work. Or we can do that research for them the way that NASA, the NASA model is today. And so we have the category of the professionals, the category of the trained professionals that we would train to live in space and operate in space, but they do their own experiments. And then I would have the, the more novice people who are there really for the experience of it, who've always wanted to see the Earth from space. This is like their big chance to go yeah. up and stay a few days on orbit. The adventure travel experience. The adventure travelers. And those I want to keep safe. So I always feel that, you know, the safety briefing is going to be a bit more than, you know, strapping your seatbelt and, <laughs> and, and put your tray tables up. But it's really, you know, we'll have to put them in. If we have suits for them, launch and entry suits, it will be that. How to, you know, emergency egress out of a vehicle. Basic things like my boss thinks this is hilarious, but I talk about how to use the bathroom yeah. is one of the most important things you can know. Yes, you're going to want to know that. <laughs> very, very, very. You're going to not enjoy it if it's not working well. That's right. <laughs> and, and just that basic, how not to break the space station, how to break, not yeah. to break your vehicle and how to be a good team player, right? And a team member with your other crew members. Yeah. That still is always going to be really important because you're going to train with them. You're going to go do a very dangerous thing with them and yeah. you're going to experience. Living with them for a week is real different than spending four hours to get on a jetliner. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. One reason jetliners can treat us the way they do when we're passengers is because you close the door and the guys up front are focused and isolated and have all the switches and dials they need. And, you know, we can put our tray tables down and watch our movies and, you know, drink our beer. Is Orbital Reef envisioning some similarly sharp compartmentalization? I mean, on station today, if you take a novice up, there's nowhere that they can treat like the passenger compartment of an airliner. Everywhere is is workspace. And doing the wrong thing in anywhere in the station can either break part of the station or break someone's experiment that they've worked and waited a decade or more to get into orbit. So there's no place you can just let someone loose. Right. Contribution that Sierra Space is providing is an inflatable. If you've seen the Bigelow beam module, right. it's, it's a, about three times larger than in, in diameter. So a fairly large volume that we want to be able to configure for habitability. We intend to make one of them just essentially a big dormitory or, or hoteling kind of environment where Depending on how much room you want, uh, you can have various size rooms. You'll have your sleep quarters, your bathroom facilities, your hygiene, uh, where you make the food, all those kinds of things. And then pretty much a free space where people can enjoy just being weightless, right? A just romper room with a window. Exactly. <laughs> and Blue Origin is really responsible for the big windows. They are putting up a core module 
that will run down the length of this uh, space station that will have very large windows that primarily face the Earth and enough space where you can truly free float and then go to the window and just hang out and watch the Earth go by. Yeah, we plan to provide the habitation and the laboratory experience for those who want to do the laboratory and then separate those, you know, keep keep the living quarters separate from the laboratory. Unless a company really wants to rent out the whole laboratory and have their scientists live and work in the same space Uh, for IP reasons. Right. But other than that, try to separate work from from living. And so the the trained professionals you're talking about, the science or corporate folks doing things. I assume you're just going to, you know, you'll recruit from any company or lab or university that wants to go down that path and you'll build your own training flow. Or do you think companies will emerge that look across Axiom and Blue and SpaceX and you guys, and they become the standalone training outfit that maybe all of you come to trust so you don't have to do that as well? Or Well, actually, we just announced that we're planning to start our own training uh, academy just so that we could accommodate what we know we're going to need until something like that were to come about. We can certainly help others train as well, but there wasn't really anything out there that I found that covered all of our needs from the professional, like, like I mentioned, like the similar to what the NASA professional is today that knows everything from the EVA training, underwater EVA training, yeah. all the way to the space flight training, the centrifuge, you know, everything to the more restricted training that uh, someone who would only be up there for say two months to do their protein crystal studies. And then they would come back home to the person may be there for five days. Right. Yeah. So different levels for different grades, I guess, of, of astronaut, depending on their needs. And, and I also plan to have a permanent medical person up there, like an emergency surgeon is what I'd really like to have an emergency trauma person who could take care of something immediately. If someone were to cut their head open on something or, you know, do something like that. But if it's something they can't handle, we would certainly be able to bring someone home, but hopefully emergency first aid we could handle on orbit. So people wouldn't have to come home for a relatively minor issue. Yeah. My final questions focused on that, you know, trained professional scientist. Think about how far down into the future you think you'll be starting to fly people like that. And tell me what grade is a student in today that ought to be aiming at maybe being that person? That researcher on a space station. We believe we will have people probably working on that space station by 2028. Six years from now is when we'll do our initial, you know, demonstration of that vehicle, probably routinely doing research on that station by the time the International Space Station is at the end of its life, which is now predicted to be 2030. Okay. So I would say, you know, we have about eight years for someone to be probably, I would guess, in college about this point in their career. Yeah. They'll they'll get out, probably get an advanced degree go work for a couple of years and find a really cool job that they love. And then if there's a point at which they decide they want to be a professional astronaut and apply to us to be a professional, live on the space station for, you know, for maybe a year at a time, or a scientist or a medical person or a researcher who wants to go spend two or three months at a time on that station. I was recently at a meeting at the White House with S. TMD, where we were talking about even allowing graduate students uh, to maybe work on their doctoral dissertation. We hadn't considered that, but that might not be a bad idea. I mean, there are a lot of professors that would, you know, really highly encourage that. So 
uh, depending on the maturity and the long-term. Well, they're building time. satellites now, CubeSats and SmallSats. Exactly, yeah. right? So, you know, we're kind of opening it up to a broad range of people we've never considered in the past, different age extremes and people with different health issues that we might now be able to accommodate with new advances in medicine, a little bit more open-mindedness about if your duration is only five days, can we take someone with a different medical condition that we wouldn't want to if they were nine months to a year? So I think there are ways to do that. And we're just delving into all the different possibilities now. Fascinating. Okay. All you high schoolers and early college people out there, you're in the sweet spot right now to start making your way towards these flight opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just the beginning, right? And it will be just growing from there because, you know, if it's not Sierra Space, it's going to be Blue, which we're partners with, but not us. So there are other companies out there who are going to perpetuate this as well as the, as the military. So I think with the Space Force, there's opportunities in that realm as well. So I think uh, lots and lots and lots of opportunities in the future that we have not had in the past. Well, Janet, thanks for sharing your story with us and your perspective on this sort of still kind of wild West era of spaceflight changing dramatically that we're watching unfold around us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kathy. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.